And we're going to call this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the 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 password is the Because we throw Thank you. Alright, everybody, let's take seats, shall we? Let's take seats. Judah. I missed you this morning. How about we, we could trade off? Yeah. Yeah. I can sit here. No, no, no. You get the no seat thing. All right. All right. So just a chance of cement now. What do you think? Yeah. It's from 1741. Wow. How did you get a cement nail from 1741? You know, it... I'm going to try and sell it on eBay, but it is it is astonishing that I actually have this. It came from uh, from a stone mill uh, just outside Boston. Not on my driveway. Hey, you know what? It's possible. All right. So real quick before uh, Joshua gets started in my. It's always the women in there. Of course it was. Missing a husband. Oh. Oh. Alright. So, um, birthday opportunity. Somebody? Rick's is today. And he's not with us. So maybe he'll listen to the portion discussion at some point. And so, uh, happy birthday to Rick. I'm uh, missing him. Thank you. He's missing being here. Yeah, yeah. I try. Tell me about All right. Fourteenth um, portion of the year so far, and just to to bring you into the calendar a little bit and keep us focused, right? So today is the first Rosh Chodesh of Shvat, right? So what's next month? Adar. Adar. Right and. What's in a door? Purim. On the 14th of the month is Purim. What's the month right after a door? Nisan. What's on the 14th of Nisan? Passover or Pesach, right? So. Starting back up. Yeah. yeah we're I can keep going if you want yeah, to. Yeah, I get you. I actually want us to try and memorize those months in order. Yes, sir. We also have two Bishvat. Two Bishvat, the right. tree thing, right? Next Friday. Yes. Right? Which I will, we will be in Israel for that. Very cool. Do they have fig trees in Israel? I mean, I think they do have a few. Okay, so. Yeah. Yeah. We, oh, sorry. Not next week. Two weeks. Okay. Two weeks, yeah. Yes. All right, so. Like Tubishvat is the uh, New Year for trees. So when you plant your tree in the land, not here, in the land, you can't eat the fruit for the first three years. And this is the anniversary that you'd be using to determine when and tying your little ribbons around the old oak tree and so on. So that's the deal there. So, so at, we we will be spending a Shabbat with our our good friends in out in Judea. Are you actually going to go out there? Yes. Good for you. So I'm going to see if I can work it out with him to 
plant the tree on behalf of the fellowship. Oh, yeah! I like it. I like it. Let me know what I need to do. I can have a tree shipped. Have a tree, you know, I have an entrenching tool that I actually used in the military that, you know, so if you need a, need a shovel, it, it travels well, you know. What's amazing is that um, Israel actually had uh, like basically no trees. Right. You know, it was they actually they were I think there was some edict from somebody some king whatever they have planted over a million trees in the land of Israel. Talk about making the desert bloom. Right. Yeah. That's cool. Good. Good stuff there. So just be be cognizant that when this month ends, we've got two months coming that have significant um, holidays in them that God worked with his people. We can read about it in the scriptures. In some cases, we are absolutely commanded to keep. So let's, uh, let's be mindful of that. And then, of course, after Passover, or Pesach in the middle of Nisan, we've got the month of Iyar, and then Sivan. And in the middle of Sivan, we're going to have... Um, Pentecost or uh, Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, right? So we've got one month dead time, if you will, in between, uh, and then right after that, uh, we'll be in the month. Yeah, sorry. I know it. I know. It. Yeah, it's not dead time. But I'm just saying, there's no holiday. Lagba. Okay, day thirty-three. So every month, every month is there. No Hasmaut. Yeah. All right. All right. So I've got some calendar mavens. Yeah, actually, right around that is Jerusalem Day, which is the fiftieth anniversary of them holding the city of Jerusalem. So it's a big deal. It is a big deal. So, all right. So you're plugged in now to the calendar. Before you know it. It's going to be Rosh Hashanah again. And, yeah, make and sure by the time we get to Rosh Hashanah, board. we'll have two more men in the community. So that's uh, it's encouraging. It's exciting to know that it'll be a rare thing for us to not have uh, a minion when we get together and pray. All right. Anything else that I need to say? Jonathan and Andy are here from Lincolnton. They're expecting you to be at their place next week. Okay, uh, It's only an hour and eight minutes. Not a big deal. Um, they are delightful. I had an opportunity to chat with them a little bit. Hoping to get them to come down for dinner and stuff like that. So I hope you'll encourage them and embrace them as a part of the community as well. They're part of a community that meets on the first and third. That's ordainedly divine, no doubt. Um, so let's, let's, let's do that. Good. Praise God. We're glad to have you here. If you don't Participate, you can't come back. Okay, <laughs> so no pressure there. Um, I think, my friend, you. Yes, I think I'm up. I am definitely up. And um, I, I know that this man is going to Israel. When's, when are you leaving? We leave on the 9th. We land at 6 a.m. on the 10th, which is Friday morning. Okay, so he will be there um, making the rest of us jealous. Absolutely. And then and almost one month later, this man will be there. Um, when officially you leave on the first, the first, okay. So can we have a Bellator presence every? Well, month? Rebecca's currently <laughs> there, so Rebecca's we're going to basically now. drill right. on this through. Is the last, our first Shabbat there is her last Shabbat, so she'll be spending Shabbat with us. Yeah. So we're going to keep that continuity. I like that continuity. Like following Greg, ask the question. Yeah. yeah. Right. Is yeah. anyone else? <laughs> volunteers. No. Yeah, volunteers. <laughs> if you'll pay for it, you know. Yeah. 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 Yeah, right? Exactly. That's what we would that's what we, what we would want to do. But yes, we should, yeah, keep them in prayer as they're going to be in the land. Um, uh, it's 
Um, not nearly as hectic as people make it out to be, but it's a very important thing to be there. Um, especially this man, it'll be his very first time. So Gregory, my brother-in-law, will get a chance to experience it for the, for the very first time. It's going to be amazing. I know that it will be. So continue to pray for them, and continue to pray for my wife, who is with our child. Woo! <laughs> and uh, is coming up. We are, we are at the end of the first trimester, which for those of you who, um, who have known us and some of our journey and struggle, uh, we have literally been waiting four years to get to this point. So this is really exciting. Thank you so much for all the prayers you've given us so far. Um, we have gotten... Uh, multiple healthy heartbeats, and we've even seen the baby who is already um, very active and energetic, and I'm sure we'll keep our lives from ever being boring ever again. That's exactly um, right. <laughs> let's, so. let's also pray for Janet. What, that I won't cry the whole time? That's exactly right. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying not to tear up right now. I'm so excited because I can't stand it. Yes, my, that is my mom. She is, um, that would be her very first grandchild, so... She has uh, also been waiting with us for that moment, so very excited. And um, yeah, no, we do thank you all for your prayers, uh, feeling this, hearing this miracle continuing to happen, and very excited to see what God has planned for us. Amazing. For those of you who are not as into like the the times and how many weeks is what, what we do not know the gender yet, mm -hmm. uh, nor could we find that out um, anytime soon. But in the next month or so, month and a half, hopefully somewhere in the around then, we'll be finding out what the plan is. Um, and that will be also very exciting. But no names, because we, we're going to wait until the baby is here. Oh. Anyway. Sounds good. Um, speaking of names, we're going to go to the book of Shemot. Oh. 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 That wasn't even on purpose. Oh, my goodness. Oh, boy. Wow. It just came to me in that moment. All right. So we're in the book of Shemot. And um, one of the things that I think this particular parsha has some very unusual, well, I say a lot of unusual things in it, really. We got so used to the plagues, I don't think that we really recognize just how incredibly miraculous they are. And there are, um, this week, Juliana was pointing out to me this morning, that you get to see almost all of them, and they come out of nowhere. Um, and there are eight, I believe, in this seven. week's... Seven. Seven this week's, seven. and then three more next week. So, Sophia, do you know... what? What's some of the plagues? Do you know some? And frogs, right. And frogs, that's two right there. That's it, that, very good. Micah, can you name any more? Yes. In order, in Hebrew. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> okay, what's the weirdest one? What do you think is the most unusual one? Um, the hail. Yeah, thank you. I was thinking yes. that too. Anytime you see fire, like, I remember there, I remember one time I had a very, um, uh, someone who was trying to say, you know, they, they saw the movie Prince of Egypt, which is an old cartoon based off of the extra story, and they're like, you know, people just make stuff up. It's not really in the Bible. The hail had fire on it. Like, that's not true. And it's like, I remember I read through it, like, you know, maybe the next year for Farsha or something like that. It's like, it is true. It really did happen. They did and their homework. They did their homework. <laughs> I know. Movie people did their homework. Amazing. Whether or not some of the other stuff in the movie happened, that's irrelevant. Yeah. But that part was real. Um, and it is. It's a miracle. It's really crazy. But, Sophia, you mentioned the frogs. And that was one. And, you know, it's... It, Pharaoh was very scared of the frogs. He did not like the frogs very much. So it's interesting that when, when, when they asked Pharaoh, when do you want the frogs to leave? Do you know what he said? He said that he wants them to leave. He wants to leave right, right away or tomorrow? Right, right away. No, he said tomorrow. Isn't that weird? 
If you wanted the frogs to go away, if you had frogs in your house, would you want them to go away tomorrow or right now? Right now. Right, that's what I would think. So it's really kind of odd that Pharaoh says, no, 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 we can wait till tomorrow. He's so scared, he wants it to end right now, but he actually says they can come tomorrow. Micah, why do you think Pharaoh wanted the frogs to leave tomorrow and not right away? Um, you have any ideas? I think one reason is because he recognized that he... There was kind of like a deal here, right? He had to let the people of Israel go in exchange for the frogs leaving. And I think that he has this sense of, like, he doesn't want to give in. He kind of wants to postpone doing this good deed. It's pride. It's pride, right. He thinks maybe the frogs will go away on their own and I won't have to do anything. And, and I, think that, I think that's such an important thing because when you read throughout the, the, the Bible, what does it talk about? The salvation is hayom, it's today. You know, what, is, what does God say? He says, do not harden your hearts today. And like Paul said, Pride goes before the frogs. Oh, right. <laughs> yes. But this, and at the same time, that the idea that like when we see Abraham, Abraham wakes up in the morning and he immediately obeys whatever God has told him to do. Because the righteous people run to do good deeds. They are quick to do what they're supposed to do. But wicked people, they wait. They wait till tomorrow. So Sophia, when your mommy tells you to clean up your uh, the, the downstairs, do you go quickly or do you go slow? Very good. You should always do those good things quickly. Sometimes, yes. Consistency is another thing to work on. But, uh, but yes, we have to move quickly when we do a good deed. And I think that's one reason in Judaism, one of the reasons they do this kind of cool. Um, I have not really gotten to this yet, probably because the schedule has never worked out for me, but I should probably try in the future, is at the end of Yom Kippur, you start putting up your sukkah. The idea is you're trying to keep the good, the good things going, and, uh, and keep it moving. One mitzvah leads to another. One mitzvah leads to another. So, um, you know, as we continue going through our, our days, uh, it's important to remember that uh, oftentimes it's so easy to put things off. And the lesson, I think, from, from this parsha and Pharaoh is that waiting until tomorrow is a bad idea. Did you notice the next time around, Moses doesn't ask him? Moses is like, so all the bad things that are happening, yeah, those are going to end tomorrow. He doesn't even ask Pharaoh what he wants this time because it's like you 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 had your chance. <laughs> you said tomorrow we're going with that, and and now and now he's stuck with that one. So um, just as a heads up for those of you who are new to our group, feel free to jump in at any time. Um, yes, sir. Since you mentioned the hail, yeah, the hail. I'm astonished. I, I'm a big believer that we should try and see and hear and smell and taste what we read. We should okay. try to, as much as possible, experience it. So I'm reading through, and this the whole hail thing with the fire, fire and ice at the same time, that stuff. Crazy. Right. So these, I thought they were like 50 pound things of hail. Turns out that's actually in Revelation. <laughs> right. But either way, it said if there's a man outside or there's an animal outside, the man or the animal will die Right. From the hail, right, and we know later we read that you know Israel's been just decimated. The hail has destroyed everything, right. Um, so I'm picturing in my mind these large blocks of ice, boom, and you know it hits the ground and the ground shakes a little bit, you know, and people are scurrying around trying to get away from the hail. If you read the interaction, um, and I, maybe I can find it real quick. Uh, who, who knows where the hail is? 
God said to Moshe, rise early in the morning and stand in front of Pharaoh and say to him, this is what God, the God of the Hebrews said, let my people go so that they may worship me because this time I'm sending a plague equivalent to all my plagues upon your heart, upon your servants and your people in order that you may know that there is none like me in the entire earth. For now I could have stretched out my hand and stripped you and your people with an epidemic and so on and so on and so on, this, that and the other. And here it is. We jump down to the Moftir. Um... Pick up in 29. Moshe said to him, to Pharaoh, When I leave the city, I will spread my hands to God. The thunder will cease, which means it's still thundering. Hmm. And there will be no more hail, which means there is hail, hmm. in order that you should know that the land belongs to God. I know that you and your servants still do not fear God, the Almighty God. The flax and the barley have been broken since the barley was ripe and the flax was hard in its stalk. But the wheat and the spelt, whoever has have not been broken because they ripen late. Moshe went away from Pharaoh, out of the city, and he spread out his hands to God. The thunder and hail ceased, and rain did not reach the earth. So the shocker to me is that he's in the city with Pharaoh, says, okay, when I leave the city, I'll pray and ask God to stop all this. Which means... He left the presence of Pharaoh, walked outside, instant amongst the hail and the rain and the fire, and walked all through the city till he got outside the city without being touched by that. In the same way that Goshen wasn't touched by this. So I'm doing the Star Trek, Star Wars thing, trying to figure out what the force field looks like. Right. So was there like a, an invisible umbrella that makes the rain rain around him? You know, and suppose the hail thing was heading right for him. Does it kind of bend or does it bounce off his little umbrella? Deal? But I am astonished that Moshe didn't even think about it, didn't even waver. It was like, this stuff's not against me. Right. It's my God who's sending it. Right. So it's not going to hit me. I'm going to walk out of the city, and then I'm going to pray. I was thinking almost kind of like the scenes in like all the movies, you know, the really cool macho Bruce Willis character. There's some, you know, bus or building explodes behind him, and he's just striding in slow-mo away from it. It's going up in the air. Doesn't, you know, <laughs> doesn't, doesn't bother him yeah. at all. You know, Moses is just striding, you know, one step at a time, huge balls of fire and falling everywhere, you know. Yes, sir. Yeah, he did not want to go and talk to someone. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting in, in thinking about um, Moses with that whole situation. He is very nervous. And I think so much of it has to do with his own sense. Because I think you're right. I think he knew God would take care of him. There wasn't a lack of faith in God. I think it was that he felt, and I think this is something that, it's ironic. People who have low views of themselves oftentimes have trouble. Not so much to think, it's like, they can't believe that God can use them. Which is ironic. It's like they have faith in God, but the hail. They don't have faith in God about themselves. And now that they have faith in themselves, they just don't have faith that God can use them. And I think that's something that maybe, maybe Moses has struggled a little bit with. Um, he can see his own failings, and uh, at the same time, uh, he ends up rising up so dramatically above all of those things uh, in the end, because he does act on it. Yes? We were reading this morning at home, so I will share some of Rick's wisdom since he's not here. But Dad was saying that we see Moses as a spiritual and a 
am concerned of is it high spoke and all those things, but we see that each time he goes to Pharaoh, he gets bolder. Yeah. Hmm. And so that by the end of this time, there is no longer the shy, timid, afraid Moshe. He right. is now bold and strong, and God has used this as a refining time for him as well mm. to get him to the place where he needed to be to take these complaining, griping people out in the wilderness. Yeah. But um, that he used this to grow. That's a good point. Moses as yeah. well through this time, and and he warned him, you know, that's in the beginning. He said it would be hard for me to give this task and be told Pharaoh will not give in to you. Yeah, you're going to yeah. lose. <laughs> you know, every time you come against him, he's going to say no. And he said, you know, that would have been a very hard way to start this with with this negative idea. But at least he was warned. It wasn't that I failed or I haven't done it well enough. And so, but he used it as a, as a time to strengthen Moshe as well. That's true. Yeah, you see that big time when they're back up against the water. And Moshe is absolutely spot on, right? Stand, you know, stand by and, and watch. The, the hand of God. It's interesting, um, thinking about Moses' anxieties. Last part shall be read. He says, don't, don't send me. The people won't even listen to me anyway. Uh, which is interesting because the, the, the uh, sages comment on that. And they say, this is, this is evil speech. This is Lashon Ra. He speaks badly about the people of Israel. He doesn't even know that they're not going to listen to him. And um, what's funny is that's not what happens initially. But it is what happens later. So he goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh doesn't like the deal. He makes things harder on the people. People, they get mad at Moses. And then Moses goes to talk to them, and they're like, yeah, we're done with you. Obviously, this is not working out. You, you heard from God, sure. You know, and yeah, this is not... And so interesting to me, it's like, there's almost like this weird self-fulfilling prophecy that occurs. And I think, it, to me, I was, I was thinking about this week, that that's a good reminder about one of the dangers of the Shomar. You know, they talk about it kills three people. The person who hears it, the person who said about and the speaker. It affects the person who's saying it. And I think that if you think about, um, uh, in this case, it's almost like because his expectation was that they wouldn't hear them, hear, hear him, they didn't. And, and I think if you think about that whole idea, how often that is true. You go into a situation, you expect somebody will take something negatively, and they do. Or you go into a situation, you expect that you won't be able to do something, and you don't. You know, sports athletes, they talk about, like, sitting in their locker room and spending time imagining, like, the entire game and everything they do is perfect because if they imagine it going wrong, that's just setting themselves up for failure. But they want to imagine it going well so they get, they're prepared for it. So I think the same thing has to do with people. You know, I think that if we have a, a more positive view, and it's a hard thing to do, a more positive view of the people around us, expect them to do well, maybe that's more likely to happen. Amen. I'm going to try. We were talking about the blood. As well, the Nile was known as the giver of life. In Egypt. Mm -hmm. It was a source of life, and yet Pharaoh himself, by throwing the baby into it, had created right. it into a place of death. Right. And so, it was kind of like you took the source of life that God gave you and, and threw babies into it and made it a source of death. And so now I will truly show you what that looks like. Source of death. Right. And so the blood was, uh, you know, reminiscent of the children that had died, and then it created everything. You know, even in their homes, everything they, they tried to drink out of was blood. And then the crazy thing, Pharaoh not only saying tomorrow, but having his magicians make more. I know, right? <laughs> like, why don't you have your magicians take it away? Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> they did that four times in a yeah, row. Like, wait, wait, no, we can do that. The, the plagues were the need, bad thing. I don't need more frogs, I need less frogs. Exactly. Something stuck out to me that it was 
chapter 9, Pharaoh saw that he actually sinned against Elohim. Oh, right, yeah. He, uh, the times before it wasn't so much that it was sin or that he even acknowledged God. Right. But yet that at this time, he's like, okay, I have sinned against your God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. And he's, he's getting these, like, little moments. But you know what's funny? I think like, going back again to that whole concept, it's so interesting how Pharaoh, like, it's like when he's in the middle of a bad time, he has this, like, moment where he's all of a sudden like, oh, I messed up, we should do... It's like as soon as it's over, he's done. He doesn't, it's like, oh, no, 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 never. I didn't say that. You know, I'm not going to do that. Of course not. And there's that sense, I think, and I think this is true really for pe- so many people too. It's like, like, consequences on sin are designed to get your attention. And then you're, but you ultimately have to ride that momentum. Right. You know, too often I think it's easy to make decisions in the midst of a bad time that you don't stick to. And that's one of the things we, we pray the Hallel. One, there's an entire section there where David's entire psalm is about fulfilling his vows. He's doing the things that he told God he would do. That's right. Yes, sir. A friend of ours had pointed out one time that a lot of the plagues were a direct antithesis of some Egyptian god. And the Nile is an mm-hmm. example of that because that was their original one. Right, yeah. They had all those ones. And Pharaoh ultimately is, is a deity as well to them. Yeah. And God t- picks them all apart. Also cool, I don't know if you saw it, um, one, of the, one of the Hebrew, it says, there's a funny word in Hebrew um, that, is, uh, that has two very different meanings. Um, and that is the word um, devar. Devar can be a word, it can also be a thing in Hebrew. Um, and so there's this point where it says, like, I will do, like, a thing, I will do a new thing. Or, but, the, but then it also says, like, and Moses like spoke and so you see the two uses of the words like in like the same verse um what's amazing about that is that it reminded me so much and i think the sages have talked about this too this idea of like god's interfering with creation here goes back to the creation story it's like this is the first time in human history where god is openly doing like what he did in genesis chapter one he is saying tomorrow this is going to happen i can as 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 we read i control the land I control creation. I can make water blood. I can make frogs appear and make frogs disappear. I can make lice come out of nothing and I can take them away again. I have complete control over all of the elements, even to the point of the, the rain. One of the coolest little midrashes is they read that verse that says, and the rain stopped. So they say that means the rain like hung in midair, whoosh, gone. Like God is in complete control. And then I think about you and then, and then Greg. And in the same way, he can make fish multiply in a basket right. to feed thousands. Right. He can stop the wind and the waves. He can walk on top of the water. Right. It's, again, to your point, from creation in that corner, a thousand years to know a thousand years to Abraham. It wasn't until 1,500 years later here in the Exodus where he chose to reach in and alter that. history. And then 1,500 years later, he did And it's important to note that it's not a, it's not a tr- uh, like a magic trick. I think that's a mistake we sometimes, it's so easy to get caught up in that. It's like, it's a miracle. But somehow that just feels like a superpower or something. It's like, God's the, that's why I brought it back to Genesis. God's the one who can make something out of nothing. It's like all of existence exists the way that it does only because he chooses for it to do so. Right. So he makes frogs appear and frogs disappear. It's nothing. It's not like he has, I mean, he sometimes chooses to use natural means, as we see, like, they came out of the, the Nile and they go back to the Nile or whatever else. 
Other times, though, it's like it just appears, vanishes. The lice come out of nowhere. They don't exist. He says, throw some soot in the air and it turns into boils. You know, it's like God has the ability to make these things come up uh, on his own. And that is true power. And I've got, I've got Greg and then Greg, actually. Oh. I, when, I think you had mentioned it before about the whole like, <coughs> Judaism's approach to honesty and vows. And that was mm. that is something that's a big contrast between Pharaoh here because Pharaoh keeps saying something and then he keeps changing his mind. Yeah. And and I think that was that's a good example for all of us to note that Judaism and the people of God are typically very strong about what they say and about their vows and, and making sure that they do whatever it is that they say. Right. But what's interesting in this portion is Rabbi Jonathan Sachs was pointing out that this is like the the like the sixth of of stories where there's dishonesty taking place because with with Moshe he, God even tells Moshe to say it but like he says specifically like we're going to just go out for three days he doesn't technically say they're not coming back <laughs> but that there is a yeah there's some I know the, uh, you, it's deceptive, the deceptive yes. types of, uh, of, of stories throughout, that we've seen throughout the, the Torah so far this year there is always like a little bit of an out sometimes and some sages will like give them that out yeah. and the other ones will just sort of try to rationalize why they were deceitful. And in this particular case, Jonathan Sachs was pointing out that um, it, it had to do with the situation that they were in. So like, he, he gave an example of this, how when you aren't free, truth can't actually be, be like in existence. And so he was pointing out that in like so many of these times, there was just like a, a, a power above whoever this was that was like making truth almost impossible like because of how much was riding on it whether or not like people's lives were riding on it so it kind of goes back to uh you know you can save a life mm -hmm. you know and you can be dishonest in order to save a life so that was his explanation in this particular case was like the lives of all of israel would were, were literally at risk mm -hmm. had moshe not rescued them because things just continued to escalate right huh that's a good point yes sir uh, so we have um, we have a tradition at Pesach that we drink how many cups of wine? Four. Okay. So that tradition comes from the first part of the of this week's portion. Six, six, seven. I will. But but there is um, but there's some there's some debate among the sages because some say well maybe there should be a fifth cup. Right. Um, I've always tried to figure out which I will is the one of the four. You know? Not, you know, maybe some say no, some say yes, and so, uh, so, so therefore we set the cup. The fifth cup that we pour is the cup of Eliyahu, because Eliyahu, when he shows up, he'll clarify sure. whether there should be four cups or five cups. You have to say, and, and surely, and surely he's going to have a glass of wine. Of course, he, of course he will. But what's interesting is. In Hasidic thought, they actually see um, that that same kind of language in the Hebrew. They actually see it ten places here, um, which is interesting because it kind of. So this is the this is the four the, these four cups. This traditionally have Passover is based on um, these are the four. I will. I wills of redemption of our redemption, right? right. right? Promises that God's made, but. And maybe there's five, and then in the Hasidic thought, they say, well, maybe there's ten. Hey, ten cups of wine. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
and it it's kind of aren't happy because people. it parallels the ten play, and there's a correspondent. Oh, okay. Course to ten plays, so but plays. it kind of starts with um, with uh, let's see what verse is this? This would be verse three, and towards the end of verse three. Are you in chapter six? I'm in chapter six. Yes, um, end of verse three. Um, no, uh, in Hebrew, no, uh, datim lachem. I will make myself known to them. So, nodati, and then you I, have. I did not make myself known. I'm sorry. I did not make myself known. Uh, lo, right, right. Lo, lo. nodati. Um, but the idea of of, of knowing Hashem. Then um, the next instance is in uh, verse four. Hakimoti, uh, I will establish uh, my covenants. Mm. And then uh, in verse 5, uh, Shomati, I will hear the cry of Israel. So we have three. Um, and then we get into where the traditional four come from, which starts in six and seven. verse 6. Vehotzeti etchem, I will take them out. And then Vehitz. Uh, the Hitzalti, I will I will save them from uh, or deliver them. The Galti, I will redeem them. Um, and then verse seven, the Lach the I will take you uh, to be my uh, nation. Um, and so, uh, and and then we get to so that's that's seven. And then I think the other uh, get, three. Get one and eight. I bring you to the land. Uh, yeah. So. Um, up to the land, and then um, and then to on uh, the end of verse, the end of verse eight. eight I'll give it to you as a and I will give them the land. Um, see, that's how many is that? That's nine. Oh, I think I missed. What was the one I missed? Hold on. And I will and I will beat you. I will beat you as God. That's also verse seven. So they they pick up this this same kind of t t t t. And there's ten of them in this passage, and that and this all has to do with redemption. The things that God is going to do as right. it pertains to the redemption, and of course the the in Hasidic Judaism they they also see a parallel to the tents of growth and all that kind of stuff. But what's interesting is the last one, which is Venatati, um, to give, referring to uh, where it says uh, that he will bring you into the land uh, which, uh, which I have uh, regarding which I have raised my hand to give it to Abraham, to Yitzhak, and to Yaakov, and I will give it to you as an inheritance. Okay? So the last, the last um, action of redemption that Hashem is going to do is to give the land to who? Israel. Who? Israel. Well, specifically, what does the text say? Abraham, Abraham Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're dead. He can't give the land to them. Unless... When that act of redemption takes place, they're not dead. Huh. So here okay. is where Hazal see one of the early instances or some in Bereshit as well. Right. 
this is another early instance of the of the resurrection is right here mm. because the text says I'm going to give it to Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. That's why it starts out saying that they did not know the, the patriarchs did not know me mm -hmm. by the name Havaya Hashem because which is not which is all kind of puzzling because when you go back in Genesis clearly the text makes it clear that they they even used that name right. Well, it's but not about knowing the name, but that they didn't understand it, right? It's right. So when it says he did not make it known, it's not that they didn't know the name; it's they didn't understand the the, the essence or or what the name, the fulfillment of the name, right? Because the idea is that mm. what promise did he give to each of the patriarchs that they never saw happen in their life? The land. The land. Right. But. He made a promise to them that he would give it to them right. and, and to their, to, right. to their descendants. And he's saying that this is the last step of redemption. Huh. Is the final step of redemption redemption is to clearly give the land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to their descendants. That's cool. So we have here the, uh, another early um, place where we we understand that the only way that happens is if they're alive, and the only way they can be alive is if they're raised from the dead. And uh, Yeshua would agree with them. He actually uses the passage right before that, the red, the burning of the bush, with the same reference to Abraham, Isaac, God, and Jacob. It's not the God of the dead. He's a God, God of the living, which was uh, quite the um, the monkey wrench in the system for the, the the Sadducean sect that didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. That was uh, and particularly brilliant by Yeshua because they also didn't really believe in the the inspiration of the prophets right. so the only part he could use was from the Torah and he, he, does, nailed, it. he nailed it <laughs> apparently so well the Hasidic thought that was a good one too um, but that's very cool can, can I ask you is it the first word in in Hebrew in, in 9 uh, I beg your pardon in 8 is that the word that you were looking at throughout this passage the Hevati the Hevati uh, to bring you. That's, that's to bring the Hev T. Do they all end with a T? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, it's, it's, it's a type of word. The, the T is the is the um, grammatical indication that it's Hashem saying, I'm going to do this. So it's okay. personal, personal. And it's also a, a tense modifier too, right? Right. I know it is in modern Hebrew if it would be in right. So So earlier you got Vaga Al T. Same kind of deal. Yeah, right. Goel. 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 Yeah. yeah. Right. Yes. I will redeem. I'm, so, I'm going to redeem. Right? Right. So I can look through and, and find those guys. Right. So so according to the to the to the Hasidim, right? If you really dive into these ten actions that Hashem is going to do, mm -hmm. you can apply it at different levels, right? It's obviously in this kind of, it, on the surface, right? He's talking about the redemption of the nation, but you can also apply it to the redemption of the soul. True. So yeah, there's some teaching there on what are these actions that that we should be looking for Hashem to perform in our lives, right? As He brings us out of our, our own Egypt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And and to that point, there's a really really good article this week um, on the Chabad website about taking the four I wills and applying them to breaking bad habits. And I can't remember all of the four steps, but one of the first one was. I'll take you out. So they said, you know, you sometimes have to physically remove yourself. So you have a problem eating too many of those chocolate bonbons. Don't have them in the house, you know. Mm -hmm. Step one. Step two 
is um, they said that one is that uh, you know God says that yeah from their service, but then we know that the reason he said, explains later is because he wants so that they will serve me. So they said that one of the things you need to do to break a bad habit is to um, replace the bad habit with something positive. So you do something, you, you bite your nails all the time, uh, find another activity you can do that is a good thing to do, quote a psalm to yourself or deep breathing exercises or something, you know, to try to like replace it with something. And I can't unfortunately remember the third one off the top of my head, which is fine because you should go read it. But the fourth point was um, just like the first point in the uh, the the ten steps for Alcoholics Anonymous. I am the God, right? So he's they reminded you that you really can't do it by yourself. There is a higher power. You do need God's help, um, and ultimately He's going to be the one to assist you. But I thought that was a really neat one, and and they have um, that one of the things that their website does pretty cool is they will have those little practical midrash kind of style. Um, articles to kind of walk through something in there. Uh, I do want to get a chance to chat a little bit about the Haftar if we get a, an opportunity here. So I do, I, I just kind of throw it out there. Feel free to throw things from this week's Torah portion. There's a lot here that you guys might have seen or wanted to talk about. Um, my notes my notes are done, but um, but I'm happy to, to delve in if there's anything else that you guys wanted to point out. One of the other things he starts with um, the sons, the heads of the household, with Reuben, but then when he gets to Moses, he just stops. <laughs> so it's like, this is my anointed. There's yeah. no reason to go on. So he goes through all the list until he gets to him, and then he's finished. In this, which is odd in this. It is an odd, odd stopping point. He didn't name it. But what? It's, it's kind of God's way of saying, I don't need to go on. This is the man I've chosen for this job. Right, and it's so funny because it almost feels like the... Well, before I say what I'm going to say, I'm going to let Brock say what he's going to say, just in case we might be on the same wavelength. Go ahead, sir. Because that happens a lot. It does. Well, I was going to say, it's odd just in general in the Torah whenever they list the brothers or the, the clans or the tribes in general because they don't always do the same order. They don't always yeah, do the true. same way. And they don't always do all of them. And in this case, they stop at Moses, and it really it kind of feels a little bit like Luke and Matthew that have these kind of random genealogies about Yeshua and they leave some people out sometimes and put some people in. And um, it definitely, there is an importance to having pedigree for whatever reason in, in, in God's system. Um, and I think part of that has to do with the fact that God's system is based on family. You know, it's based on fathers passing to sons, passing to their sons, and so forth. I mean, you know, the, 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 so much of this, we haven't written today, but the intention was that it was supposed to be spoken. You know, like you're telling your kids... They would go, you know, once every, uh, what is it, seven years for, to hear the Torah read as a community, and the intention of that was that everyone would hear it, because you may or may not have a Torah scroll or whatever else at in your village, so that might be the only chance to really hear all the words straight from the Torah. So what did you have to do? You had to memorize it, and you had to pass it on uh, generation by generation, and I think that that whole genealogy, I have to say now, given given my life change that's coming here. It's a strong reminder that like um, that those genealogies start to stack on top of each other, and you know Moses's dad is named, and his and his brother is named, and his brother's kids are named, and some of their wives are named, and it's like wow, like you know you really have this. I mean, Abinadab, uh, I mean, uh, um, I'm sorry, uh, Amram, excuse me, Moses's father isn't necessarily thinking to himself, I need to find me a good wife because I'm going to have the messianic style character is going to save us from Egypt. He's just trying to be a good guy, but his role is critical. And it's like you just never know what God's plans are for you and, and, and you have to take seize that moment, so to speak. I think that, 
I'm just going to comment. You, know, you, you made the comment that they had to memorize it. It's not like they all had, you know, copies like a copy sitting on their you know, bookshelf or whatever, right? Kinko's is just not that old. <laughs> but it just made, it made me think about even today, uh, even today in Orthodox Judaism, when the, when the Rav gives a shiur on Shabbat, Right. Nobody's writing. Nobody can write it down. Right. Because that's a that's a prohibition on Shabbat. And you can't, you can't record it. And they can't record it because they're not using electronics. So there's the Talmudim literally will all you know listen intently and and memorize as much of that sermon as they can, and then they write it down after Shabbat. And so we have so they have this they have books of the Shirim that their Rav is given on Shabbat. But it was all written down after at least twenty four hours later right. because that's pretty it's, cool. It's, 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 yeah, it's, so that that kind of skill still yeah still exists among God's people. Absolutely, well, that kind of attentiveness yeah. is uh, almost unheard of outside of Orthodox Judaism. Mm. And delivery too. I think that that's one reason, like you know, people sometimes ask about um, you know, Yeshua tells parables partly so that the people don't understand. But there's also, I think, an intent to give things that his disciples will remember. Right. And I think that's that's the idea behind the Midrash. I mean, there's some weird stories that Judaism teaches about some of the things that happen in the Torah. But I love them because the goal is not whether or not they're right or wrong. That's not the, It's not important whether it actually happened in history. What's important is, does it teach you something? Because the, weird, the weirdness element of it helps you remember. You remember what the, 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 the story is so that you can remember the point, which is sure. the goal. Yes, sir. Back to the point you made about um, genealogy and heritage, father, son. It's easy when you're reading Torah or the Tanakh or the Upslug writings, whenever they list the genealogy of, of someone, to say, this, this doesn't help me at all. And, and whenever I read it, I think about, well, I, it, I, I know I'm a reflection of my father. And every every man is on some level. Mm-hmm. So if if for good or ill, I'm a reflection of him. And if he did his job, you know that means I'm a good reflection of something good. Right. And if you're reading that genealogy, you can say, well, I could be this guy in the middle. If he didn't do his job, the guy on the end who we're trying to talk about may not have been who he needed to be. Right. So, so whenever I read genealogy of someone who was important or who did something that that God needed him to do, it's like, well. Yeah, you may not be that. You may not be that guy, but you might be the guy a little further up who made sure that you know something got passed on. Yeah, yeah. So that's, I, I think that's important to remember. It's, it's not unlike you know when you're you try to take a sledgehammer to a, a large rock and bust it. You know, it's was it really that last final stroke? Was it that that last stroke was so hard that it? No, it's all the strokes combined that led to the breaking of the rock. And it's, as you pointed out, it's the consistency and the faithfulness of every man in that line hmm. that led to the final man. You know? mm-hmm. And for many of us, we're, we're either just starting a faithful line or we're only one or two deep into a, a faithful line that hopefully is, is going to last multi-generationally. I mean, if, if there's anything that ties us all together in Bellatora, beyond the Torah, beyond Yeshua himself, 
it's a strong desire for multi-generational faithfulness. Mm -hmm. We all cool. want those kids. To see that. Yeah. I mean, even in this room, you're looking around and you've got mm -hmm. um, people bringing their kids here. Which, by the way, we love to hear Grant's commentary during Amen. the lessons. So don't, don't shut him up. We want him here. We love to have Sophia here and the things that she's learning. And, uh, and, you know, all ages. And it's just really cool to see these multiple generations, you know. I mean, this Ratashem, sometime in, in later at the end of this year, will have a chance where, like, my dad can be here, I can be here, my kid can be here. And it's like, that's amazing to be able to see that, that chain of events. And each, and to your point, each, each son is a little bit different than his or her, uh, his father, excuse me. I'm so used to think about the gender being neutral here. In this case, we're talking all about sons. Um, the, uh, his father, uh, at the same time, he is a reflection. It may or may not be exactly the same, but the goal, as you said, if the father does a good job, they're passing on the general gist. And you can see that vision and that desire and that love of God and the faithfulness going from one to the next to the next. And um, we are very thankful to our parents for all the hard work that they do, which now I'm only starting to realize a lot. You know, this really looks quite hard. We're going to get to that point later. Um, and those of us also who have married people who have done a good job, we are also very grateful for the hard work that they did so that uh, that makes our lives easier. I was I was convinced the second he was born, I did not truly understand my parents until I had. <laughs> well, it's so funny you say that because earlier when you were talking about the name thing, you know, they, they used the name Hashem and they didn't know what it meant. I was thinking about that even like for us, I think that the, probably the name Dad is probably that way. You know, you refer to your father by this name, and that's like his nickname. That's his name. That's who he is. But like, what that means to be dad doesn't really resonate. And I have a personal until you be one, I would assume. I'm getting there close, but not quite yet. Um, at least not in practice. But the um, the, but I think about like, I mean, you just for myself, like when I'm a young man, or being like late twenties, final early, I'm not late twenties, late teens, early twenties, finally getting to be like you know an adult and doing grown up things and whatever else. And it's like I had just enough independence and just a little enough responsibility that I felt like I knew everything you know my dad old times hasn't hasn't caught up yet whatever and as soon as that responsibility started to grow and I got a little bit out of my comfort zone there were emails going to dad and I was eating dad's advice and it's like all of a sudden he's the brilliant most brilliant man in the world and and I think that's that same idea it's like you know Abraham and Isaac and Jacob they knew Hashem they knew him by that name but what does that mean? And when you look at, like, Moses, he's fulfilling the promise from all this time. They're going to enter the land of Israel. Those people are now going to understand, this is who that is. I've experienced it. And that's one of the beauty things about God's names in the, in the, in the Bible uh, is that they're not about me. Like, he got his many names. It's kind of confusing. It's not about the fact that he has, like, many personalities or anything like that. It's more like each name represents something that you experience. It's a different way of seeing God. And we're interacting. And interacting with God. And it helps you understand God. Because God is way beyond our comprehension. But each name has a, has a piece to it. Um, one of the things this week, because it is Rosh Kodesh, it's kind of cool, is the Moftir reading is replaced. So we could... Any last final comments on Exodus? We can always come back again. That's fine. I'm just going to just move on over to Numbers. Because I think it's really nifty... I, I love I love the fact that like you have these little readings for the holidays and all that stuff, and Numbers is easily the most dull book in the Bible. <laughs> I mean, there's parts of it that are really fun and exciting, but some of the stuff is really 
really hard to draw things out of. And I believe that God does it on purpose because I think that some of the coolest things that he likes to do are usually just below the surface. And he really enjoys um, uh, kind of tucking that away. So um, I realize I flipped too quickly. What chapter and numbers are we in? Is it 27? 28. 28, okay. I knew it was late in the, somewhere in the 20s. Okay. So we're going to go to... Uh, sorry, is it starting verse 9 or verse 11? 9 in mine. Yeah, it starts with the 7. Um, while you're there, just go ahead and read, read the... It's the moth tier, I think, is nine, uh, 28, verse 9 through 15. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. And on the Sabbath day, two male lambs in their first year unblemished, two tenth ephah of fine flour for a meal offering mixed with oil and its libation, the burnt offering for each Sabbath on its own Sabbath, in addition to the continual burnt offering and its libation. On your new moons, you shall bring a burnt offering to Adonai, two young bulls, one ram, seven male lambs in their first year, unblemished, and three tenth ephah for, of fine flour for a meal offering mixed with oil for each bull, and two tenth ephah of fine flour mixed with oil for the one ram, and a tenth ephah of fine flour for a meal offering mixed with oil for each lamb, a burnt offering, a satisfying aroma, a fire offering to Adonai. And their libations, a half hen for each bull, a third hen for the ram, a quarter hen for each lamb of wine. This is the burnt offering of each month in its own month for the months of the year, and one male of the goats for a sin offering to Adonai. In addition to the continual burnt offering, shall it be made and its libation. Thank you, sir. So I think it's cool in this one. First thing that I hope jumped out at you as you're reading through this is the elevation of each Sabbath on its own Sabbath. Then later on it says... The elevation offering of each month in its own month. You can't do next months. You can't do last months. There are no do-overs, which I think is such a brilliant lesson about life. Like, you can't be... Like, what's the story? Remember the story? Uh, Yeshua tells a parable. The guy has all this grain. He's doing really well. And he sits down one night and he goes, I'm going to build bigger barns. It's going to be huge. Yeah, we're going to make huge barns. We're going to put all the extra grain in there. And I don't have to work. Like, I don't know. I can retire now. And he just plots out the next 30 years of his life. And that night, he dies. And God's point was like, you fool. Like, what are you doing? Like, you think you have control over your own life? You know what's going to happen tomorrow? No. doesn't mean we shouldn't plan. But the point is that, like, he had gotten so wrapped up in his future, he wasn't living today. And I think it's so interesting that, like, with the... At the same time, people do the opposite. They get so wrapped up in the past. Ecclesiastes specifically calls out and says... It's vain for you, oh man, to go, oh, weren't the old days so much better than today? And the crazy part is people do that all the time. You know, we're looking at, you know, oh, I missed this or I missed that or back in the day, you didn't have to have your door locked or whatever it might be. And it's like Ecclesiastes' point is this is a waste of time. You don't have endless time. Why are you wasting it worrying about things or talking about things that already happened? And the, the beauty about the, the offering for the Sabbath and for the new moon is that there were, it's a perfect picture of the present tense. There's no, there's no preparation and there's no do-overs. You don't get to go again, oh, I forgot last week. I'll try it this, two this week. Doesn't count. Last week is over. You got to push that one away. You got to, you know, um, learn the lessons, forgive yourself, move on. If last week was great, you don't get to skip this week. Every week is another, another time. And I think it's neat because the, the, safety, the Judaism teaches us that the Shabbat is supposed to be like a picture of the world to come because time sort of stands still. And so it's like in this moment, all you have is right now. 
and I think it's also interesting, one of the things we also learn about in Leviticus chapter 23, it begins just like this one does. It starts with the Shabbat. What's cool is that um, the Shabbat then becomes the uh, template for all of the remaining holidays. Every time it says we have a Shabbat, you go, I know what that looks like. We're going to do the Shabbat. We're going to keep the Shabbat. It's going to look something like Saturdays. Well, the seventh day of the week, we should say. Um, so then on this week's, uh, this uh, Maftir, I noticed this year that this is the first time we get the breakdown of all the different little pieces of the offerings, which if you look at it, the ones for the new moon are identical to all of the other major holidays, basically. So um, it's the template for the holidays. And I don't think we always give Rosh Kodesh its due. I mean, the, today is a holiday. It isn't just supposed to be, my wife does. She loves Rosh Kodesh. We, before we first got married, she was always wanting to make a big deal out of it, do something special for dinner or whatever activity. Um, it might have something to do with the fact that it's the woman's holiday. She's not supposed to do anything. No, no, no. She just always loved it because I think she saw the Bible makes a big deal out of it. And I think that that's something that's really cool. And we should remember that because today is like a template for the other holidays. It's kind of, it's, it's kind of giving you like a glimpse into what these other days are, especially a day like today, where it's also a Shabbat, which is like this perfect combination. Um, and so you get a chance to see kind of the same idea. So we're thinking about being joyful, and we're thinking about celebrating and making a big deal out of it. And it's so cool that God uses the first of the month. So basically, it's like if you had to learn how to do something, uh, it'd be great to get almost like a practice run in like a, a non-holiday time. So... Um, granted, with the, with the children of Israel, their first experience, I guess, keeping the holidays was Pesach, so it was their first holiday. But then, like, before they got to Shavuot, they'd get a new month. Well, they had a Rosh Kodesh before Pesach. Right, before. Uh, said, it, this will be the first of months. First of months for you. So you get this Rosh Kodesh as almost like a, it's like a dry run for all of the holidays. So we start with all these offerings, and it's like we're going to do the exact same thing in about two weeks. And that's just really neat how God is kind of like, you know, training people to be able to do the stuff just like he does with the Shabbat to teach you how to keep the holidays. Mm -hmm. Are you going to go to Isaiah 66? I am, but... Well, yeah, so real quick, the, it, it reminds me, like the way that Judaism has their calendar set up reminds me of like the, you know, seven times enhanced version of how the world views New Year. Everybody <laughs> has all these New Year's resolutions, which fizzle out after a couple weeks. But right. Judaism, it's, I mean, because all the blessings for the new month is like, may you inaugurate a, upon us a good month. Right. Like it's, and same with Shabbat. It's like everything's starting it's over restart. weekly yeah. and monthly and then at each year in addition. So you've got like 12 New Year's Seven almost years. with Rosh Kodesh. Right. Yeah, exactly. And there's, there's a lots of others Seven besides years. that. And, and what's so, what's just so cool about that is that it's that same idea that you were talking about where it's like, if you had a bad week or something like that, it, it should just be a bad week that should never you know, grow into a bad year especially not even a whole bad month because there's always going to be more renewal in the Jewish calendar right. to just refocus your attention on, on the good things that God is about to do. Absolutely, and it's funny that we were talking, we were laughing earlier about all the things in the calendar, but that's like, Judaism's calendar is crazy full. Like, I mean, you know, it, uh, people tease me somehow, sometimes because I work in a bank, about, you know, banking holidays, which contrary to popular opinion, if you don't actually work in a branch, you don't get all of the, the holidays. But nonetheless, you do end up with um, you do end up with uh, you know Veterans Day, which is like a day that most people don't get. You might get an extra day here or there that other people might not get as a holiday. 
But the the point though is that like even with all the banking holidays, if you were to get all of them, um, there's just even then it feels like they just kind of pale in comparison to the number of events that Judaism has in the calendar. You have you have a new month every single month. You have a new uh, it's like a holiday. Every week is a Shabbat. Then you've got all of the 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 like the seven major festival events. And then you've got like all the little small ones. You've got fast days because we want to be happy all the time. And then we've got like you know um, all the other little additional holidays like Purim and those fast days will become days. They will become basically right. It's like so basically every month you've got at least one, maybe two, maybe three holidays. And to your point, it's like God's just keeping you on rhythm because it's so easy to get bogged down and tired and lose focus. And those little moments are supposed to kind of perk you back up again, get you going, keep you moving. And I think that's something that, I mean, the irony is, you know, we, we kind of talk about, like, Christmas and Easter Christians, because they only really have two holidays. And it's like Judaism's, I mean, there are people who only go to do Yom Kippur, you know, that kind of thing. But I think the idea was you, you can't be that in God's community, because even if you're only a holiday guy, there's like 40 holidays throughout the year. So at the very least... You're, you're living a trajectory that's that's positive. Mm-hmm. But yes, Isaiah 66. It is. Like to take us in that direction. 1 through 24. Which, just as a quick little testimonial, Isaiah 66 is probably one of the most important passages as to why I keep the Torah today. Mm-hmm. Because Isaiah 66 was one of those few handful of passages that totally blew my mind on God's plan for the universe. Because up until then, I'd always been raised the idea, um, well, my, my dad was already figuring things out, so he was thinking differently. But the pastors and whatnot I'd grown up with, they'd always said, okay, that stuff is old. We stopped doing that a long time ago. Isaiah 66 really threw me for a loop because I'm reading it going, this isn't old. This is a prophecy. This hasn't happened yet. But we're still talking about like people eating swine's flesh is a bad thing. That's confusing to me. It makes more sense now. Go ahead. This is what God said. The heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. So what house could you build worthy for me? What place is worthy for my presence to rest? My hand has made all these things, heaven and earth, and therefore all these things came into being, says God. But even though I am so exalted, to this I will pay attention. To he who is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembles at my word. However, he who kills an ox, offering his sacrifice without trembling at my word, it is as if he slew a man. He who sacrifices a lamb without trembling is as if he's cut off a dog's neck. He who offers a meal offering without trembling is as if he offered swine's blood. He who burns incense without trembling is as if he blessed an idol. He who offers up frankincense without trembling is as if he offered an inappropriate gift. They've chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. So too I will choose to mock them and will bring their fears upon them. Because when I called to them through the prophets, none answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. They did evil before my eyes and chose what I did not desire. Hear the word of God, you who tremble at his word. Your wicked brothers who hate you and who ostracize you say, I am so great that God is glorified because of my name. (laughs) But in truth, we shall see your joy and they shall be shamed. Then there will be a voice of rumbling from the city of Zion, a voice from the temple, a voice of God, rendering recompense to his enemies, Gog and Magog. Before Just a quick time out, he is reading from the 
Chabad uh, enhanced version here. So there's a couple things you might not see in your text, but it's helpful to think about. Before she, Zion, feels labor pains, she will give birth. Before her labor pain will come, she will be delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such a thing? Has a land gone through its labor in one day? Has a nation been born all at once? For Zion labored and gave birth to her children. Shall I bring to the birth stool and not cause her to give birth? Says God. Shall I, who caused birth, hold back? Says your God. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad with her, all you who love her, to see her rebuilt. Rejoice for joy with her, all you who mourn for her in her destruction, so that you may be rewarded to nurse and be satisfied with the breasts of her consolations, that you may drink deeply and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. For this is what God says, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the wealth of the nations will rush to her like a flowing stream. You who mourn for her shall be rewarded to draw effortlessly from the wealth of the nations. You shall be honored by the nations like a baby who is carried on its mother's sides and dandled on her knees. Like one whom his mother comforts, so will I comfort you. And you shall be comforted in Jerusalem from your suffering. When you see Jerusalem rebuilt, your heart will rejoice, and the health of your bones will be strengthened like flourishing grass. The mighty hand of God will be known to his servants and his anger toward his enemies. For behold, God will come with fire to destroy the armies of Gog and Nagog, and with his chariots like a storm to repay his enemies with fury. His rebuke will be with flames of fire, for by fire God will execute judgment, and by his sword upon all flesh. The slain by God will be many. Those who prepare and purify themselves to go to the gardens of idolatry, one group after another to worship the idol in the center of the garden, those who eat swine's flesh, abominable, abominable creatures, and mice. Hmm. They Actually, there are cultures who together, do that. says God. I know their works and their thoughts. The time has come that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. I will scar them. But from them I will let survivors escape to the nations, to Charshish, Pool, and Lud, the archers to Tuval and Yuvan, to far-off islands that have not heard my name, nor have, seen, nor have they seen my glory. They shall declare my glory among the nations. They will then bring all your brothers from all nations as an offering to God, on horses, in chariots, in covered wagons, on mules, and with songs, and dances to my holy mountain in Jerusalem, says God, just as respectfully as the people of Israel bring an offering and a pure utensil to the house of God. For them, too, I will take to be priests and Levites, even though they will have forgotten their lineage, says God. For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make in those days, shall remain before me, says God, so shall your descendants and your name remain forever. It will then be that every first of the new month, and every Shabbos, all mankind shall come to worship before me in the holy temple, says God. The non-Jews shall go out of Jerusalem to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and look upon the corpses of the men of Gog and Magog, who have rebelled against me. For the worms that eat them will not die, and the fire that burns them shall not be distinguished. They shall be a symbol of disgrace to all mankind. It will then be that every first of the new month and every Shabbos, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says God. It's interesting that that verse, thank you, that verse from new moon to new moon, from Shabbat to Shabbat, we actually just played off of that in Numbers. But what's so funny is I think when we read these passages, we think about like in, in the world to come, there will be no, no time, as though somehow that means that like 
I don't know, it, it feels like it'll have no rhythm, it'll have no movement, it'll have no pattern. And I don't know, I, I read this passage and it seems to me like maybe there will be some sort of consistency, some sort of pattern. But what's cool about this is I feel like that should be encouraging. You know, I feel like right now sometimes it's so easy to feel like, oh, the grind. I mean, I was just literally in the elevator yesterday. Some poor guy, he's in there talking to a woman going down the elevator and he's like, oh, we're ready for the weekend. Yes, she agrees, ready for the weekend. And he goes, yeah, we work all week for the weekend. It's two days. And I thought to myself, that is so sad. <laughs> like, your entire life is spent doing things you don't want to do five out of the seven sevenths of the time. And all you get are two days a week that you can enjoy. And, uh, and I think it's interesting because we, it's easy to feel that way. The grind, you know, the constant one day after the next. And it's frustrating, especially um, uh, if you, it, depending on the tasks that you do and the job that you have, it doesn't always work as like, you, you don't always get to finish something. Sometimes, when I mean, you work in the service industry, so you know this is like, you finish a task, and that's great, but then in about five minutes later, they got a new one for you. And it's like, dig this ditch, now that's fine, plant something, dig another one. And you're just basically digging ditches all day long. And each one's a little momentary victory, but it doesn't mean that you're done digging ditches. And that, that grind it can be exhausting, but I think this passage, and also to some degree the numbers one, encourages us about the grind. But the grind's not a bad thing. The rhythm is a good thing. God wants us to maximize each Sabbath, each new moon, mm -hmm. and keep moving through them because the life we've been given is a blessing. We're not just supposed to, like, you know, grit our teeth and, you know, push through the days we don't like till we can finally get to the weekend. That's, that's not the way that God's called us to live. I've got you and then you. So two things. One, first, I'm, I'm grateful to work. Oh, absolutely. I've, and I, I know there are some people that have now experienced not having the opportunity to work. We all want to work. Work is good. Work is good. Um, that was something my dad taught. But, good. but I, I think the, the reality for me, at least when I got into this walk, was recognizing almost for the first time that there is no weekend. I work six days, <laughs> right. and then I get Shabbat. And Shabbat has got to be the preeminent thing that I would never even dream of giving up now. Mm, if you right. said, well, you, know, you can't be messing around, you can't, you can't do this walk anymore. That, that's, this Sabbath is so sweet to me, especially when you guys are here. Right. You know, and especially when you're not here. I mean, it's just, it's great no matter what. Um, so that's the first thing. Uh, to me, it's six and one, it's not five and, five and two. And the world, the, the world doesn't get that. In fact, you even see in some of the apps now that you can change your calendar so it doesn't start on the first day of the week. It starts on Monday, the second day of the week, so that it looks like there's two left over for you to play with, which is ridiculous. But the funny thing about that is even then, I was talking to another guy, uh, boy, Fridays, weekends, obviously the only thing we're talking about, right? So the other guy was saying he was having looking forward to a relaxed weekend, and he was so excited about that because... I guess the past weekend had been really busy, and he just said, oh, man, I just need that weekend to do nothing, right? Shabbat builds that in automatically. I mean, it's funny, when we, we plan, my wife and I have been travelers up to this point, and we plan a trip, and we're thinking about, like, well, where do we want the Shabbat to fall? Because that's a day, where do we want to be on the Shabbat? Because we can't go and buy things that day, so we might go for a walk around town or whatever, but, but it's also helpful, like, some, uh, how many times we've had it in like, the middle of the trip, and we're kind of tired. You know, been pushing ourselves, going to, going to do activities, eating good food, doing fun things. And then it's like, on this day, basically just want to hang out in the hotel, go for a walk, go to the park, and that's it. 
don't need to do anything else the whole rest of the day. And that's a real break. And I think that, uh, to your point, our society doesn't get that. They don't. They don't. And they don't take it. That's right. All right, so the second thing is, I don't think this is talking about the world to come, as you mentioned. I think this is the millennium. Okay, that also works. And, and because it's the millennium, we're not in the New Jerusalem, we're in Jerusalem. Okay. And my master's on the throne, and they will come and worship him, whether they want to or not, unless they don't want the rain. Right. So that's, that's where I think this is. So I think those rhythms that you're talking about still exist during that time. And, and we'll get to see, we've got these sacrifices and opportunities to worship and serve him in the temple with the master during that thousand yeah, years. Yeah, cool, exactly. After that, I, I don't know what, what's happening. But it doesn't really matter. This, yeah, right this, this works. I hear you. Cool. Yes, sir. I think the difficult thing in our culture, and the reason why even some of us view the weekend as, you know, the weekend, is because those are the only two days that we have to be with our family for a whole day. True. True. And, and but that's only that's in our group. It, that's what like, makes it different. I mean, there was a there's a Jerry Seinfeld joke where he's like, you know, golf stands for get out, leave family. Because well, a was, lot of men don't spend time with their families, even on the weekend. That's I, not saying that golf is a bad thing if you play golf. I'm just saying that, like, but, my point, though, is that yeah. there, are, there is an entire part of our culture that wants to run away from it. Well, and, and why I'm saying this, because I've, I've stood in both, I've, I've worked from home for a significant amount of time, and I've worked in an office for a significant amount of time, and so I've done both. And when you're home, it is much easier to be part of your family than when you're not. Hmm. And... Um, you really use the weekend, Shabbat, and Sunday to reintegrate and right. kind of have a reset with your family. That's true. Right. Which is difficult. You know, it's, it's, it's not as, as difficult if you're, you're home all the time versus if you're not. And I had something else. I had a large point I was going to say. Well, while you're thinking of it, I mean, I can, I can tell you that I didn't have the privilege of working from home for most of the time my children were growing up. And, and Alan and I were, were adamant that since I wasn't going to be here for lunch, we were having breakfast together, and if at all possible, we were having dinner together as a family mm -hmm. to avoid that my kids don't see Dad except on Sunday. Well, it's funny. In my past, I remember growing up, the, uh, the, we'd see these you know, ads or whatnot. Have dinner with your family. <laughs> Try to spend at least one meal a week or a day or whatever. And we're looking at each other like, Every meal? Every day? Yeah. I mean, when are we not together for a meal? Like, he, and, and my dad, my dad was an airline pilot, so there were some whole days he wasn't home, but that's just the job he worked. But um, when he was home, we're always together. That's right. I mean, it was like you had to get permission as a, as a teenager when you had, you know, the driver's license Wait, you don't want to, to be, be away for a, meal? for a meal. You know, like this was not, this is not the way that it works. Yeah, that's right. Yes, yeah, sir. Oh, sorry. You think of it? I thought, I didn't, yeah, actually. There we go. That, wrong, uh, wrong hand, sorry. Yes, sir. Yeah, I remember. Um, so, and then conversely, you're talking about, you know, appreciating the grind or appreciating being grateful for work. I've been in situations where I'm waiting for the next project. I'm not financially, like, you know, in peril or anything. I'm literally just waiting for the next project. No responsibility on me. And I'm sitting there and I have nothing to do. I'm like, wow, I really wish I was working right now. <laughs> and, and most of the time we don't think about that. Yeah. Um, but, but as men, we need, we, it. We, need, we need to work. Retirees, same thing happens. They die. They, they die because they're not, they're not doing anything. They lose all sense of accomplishment and fulfillment. you got to have something. Yeah. Um, in this particular part of uh, Haftar, one of the cool things that God delves into, and I think it's neat, is the, uh, the intro 
uh, to be honest with you, when we read this chapter, it's kind of hard to follow the flow sometimes because it kind of feels like we're talking about like nine different things in like segments. But actually, I really think that God is trying to like move through a rhythm of different stuff. And he starts by talking about the, the temple service. He then transitions to talking about the Jerusalem. And then he ends with the, the end, the millennial type reign or, or some sort of end times event with Jerusalem and all of its glory with God uh, there. And you get this, even the New Jerusalem gets mentioned. And so I think that each one's almost like a little picture of the other pieces. So the first one is the temple service. It's all about God's presence. But it's also about the wicked who aren't serving God the right way right. in the temple service. They're going, they're offering their offerings, but they're not doing it with the right heart. They're not doing it with the right... Interestingly enough, Judaism teaches that the priesthood was required when they sacrifice an offering to be thinking about the right thing as they're doing that. If they're not thinking about the right thing, it doesn't count. Like, whoa, like that's a big deal. And so the Judaism gets this idea from, from I think in large part from the prophets, that well, intent, kavanah as they call it, is very important. Uh, it's important in prayer as well. Then you get the next stage, then you have Jerusalem being restored, and he compares it to the, he contrasts the people who are rejoicing in Jerusalem with the, uh, the uh, arrogant guys who are mocking them, their enemies. Um, one of the Rashi comments that I thought was kind of cool, but there's multiple versions of who are these people. One of them they just threw out there was your brother's references Esau. And it talks about Edom because we know from the Psalms that the Edomites were like, you know, they were celebrating that Jerusalem was being wiped out. Mm -hmm. They so hated the people of Israel that when Babylon came in to devastate Jerusalem, they were cheering them on. And God singles that out. And he pulls that out. And when you go to the book of Obadiah, God's like, okay, now this is going to be bad. Because you you mistreated your brethren when they needed you. So I'm going to really remember that one. So we get this contrast here with Jerusalem and rejoicing in Jerusalem being restored versus those who are almost like cheering its destruction. And then, uh, But again, you get the presence of God. You get the wicked. And at the very end, you get the other side. So there's the, the ultimate punishment of the wicked. And, uh, and the whole like worm dies not and all that stuff, which by the way... For those of you who um, don't seem to think that there's any kind of, uh, some sort of penalty for your life, Yeshua talks about this, and he's pulling from this passage. He's actually drawing that the worm dies not, and you know, so forth, comes from here, because uh, this idea, and if you think about Revelation, talks about the second death. Well, this whole thing is all about corpses. It sounds pretty, pretty deathly. Um, but then he contrasts the wicked, so this is like a final judgment of the wicked, with the final restoration of God's presence in the world. He's talking about his reign in Jerusalem in this world, and then the new Jerusalem, which is like the ultimate of, of God's presence with his people. Mm -hmm. So the chapter feels a little bit disjointed because it's talking about multiple things, but it's really a theme of God's presence and those who serve him and the wicked who and their, and their penalty. And it kind of goes through each stage. And I think that when you talk about God's presence and those who serve him, it says it begins with, you know, basically, the heavens are my throne, that's my footstool, what house will you build me? And the Rashi commentary on this, I thought it was so cool. They're like, God's basically saying, I don't need your temple, but I choose to use your temple because of the humble and contrite that are there. I don't need it, but to prove that they're important to me, I come and meet with them. That was really cool. And, uh, and think about how grandiose God is. I remember one time... Um, uh, I'm trying to remember, oh my goodness, I can't remember his name right now. Um, Louis Giglio is a famous Christian youth pastor type character. Um, and one of the things that he has kind of known for is his 
star sermon. It's really star sermon, a celestial star sermon. And it's quite cool. He walks through um, the universe, basically, and talks about the number of stars and how big they are and how they form. And, you know, and it, his point in the sermon is that, like, you think that, I mean, like, like the universe is beyond your comprehension. And God made all that. And God still loves you. And it's like, if you kind of get that picture here, it's like, God's like, I don't need anything. But I care so much about the humble of all people that I will actually diminish myself to the point that I will put myself into time and space to interact with them. Which is exactly what he ultimately does um, in the form of Yeshua as well. And you get so many things from Yeshua in, this, in, these, in these passages. Um, the, the humble and contrite takes you back to I am meek and lowly of heart. You know, learn from me. Um, you have the quote about the worm dying not. Uh, there's just, a, it seems like Yeshua really likes the prophets. Also, about the, uh, this is one other thing to throw in here. It says that the, with fire Hashem will judge and with his sword against all flesh. Uh, many will be those slain by Adonai. The sword against all flesh um, takes me back to, there's a reference in Hosea that says he will slay them with the word of his mouth. Um, and then you, and then it's like the sword and the word of his mouth get combined in the book of Revelation where he says that Yeshua comes, the Messiah comes back, and it says he, he there's a sword coming from his mouth that will slay the nations. That sounds really weird, but it does seem to actually have, well, I think it really has, and not only is it, I believe, from God, the prophecy of John, but there's a backing for it, you know, we believe what came before, True. you know, so on. So I see we're about to the end. Any other final comments? Because I wanted to make one quick reference to the apostolic writing, and then we'll, we'll wrap up, unless there's something else. So the apostolic writing this week was 1 Peter, you know, chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. And many of you probably are familiar with, I wouldn't know where you're right now, but you're familiar with probably the passage that talks about you are a chosen priesthood, and God has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You're not a people, you are a people. What's interesting about this, and what I told you was kind of weird about the passage, if you go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, you find out his audience is not who you think it was. See, I think as Gentiles, we read this chapter in Isaiah 66, and there's like a hint, depending on how you're translating, that the, some of the Gentiles get called to be priests, which is kind of weird, very weird, um, or Levites. And they, um, and uh, there's this idea of, like, especially in our in our more Gentile-driven faith, so much Christianity, um, to want to like take Jew Jewish things and make them ours. So Paul uses the reference of those who are not a people are made a people, and he's using it to refer to Gentiles to talk about the idea that the Gentiles who are basically <laughs> the ironic thing is we like to look at that passage and be like uh, Christians like uh, re replacement theology Christians look at that and they're like aha see we took over Israel's role actually Paul's saying yeah you guys were losers and God made you a people so you know that's not exactly a aren't we great kind of verse but the um in first Peter though the reference to that is not talking about Gentiles right. chapter one of first Peter he is speaking specifically to the diaspora of the Jewish people so it's interesting that like he has to make a point to them to remind them that God has given them these things. He's made them into priests. He's given them um, his, he's made them into a people. And I think it's a good reminder to us that God has not abandoned his people just because they are scattered all over the planet. Um, just like 
Peter is dealing with here, the same promises that we read in Exodus today, I'll give you a land, I'll take you to my people, they're still in existence. Same and, God. What, so what? Same God. Same God, right. And just as we saw in Isaiah, where it seems, oddly enough, like some of the things like Sabbaths and new moons and swine's flesh, still important at the end of the story, um, that and God mice. is consistent. And mice, yeah. Yeah, just believe it or not, there are places they eat mice. Mm. That's gross. So, um, you know, as we go throughout our lives, we need to be keep keeping in mind that our, the, that God is consistent. You know, talking about Sophia being consistent, cleaning her room quickly. Um, God, is, God is the ultimate in consistency. And he always does things the same way, um, uh, sticking to his promises and so forth. And his expectations don't change. Anything else? Can you close that in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the the time we have to study the Word of God with friends, family, fellow believers. We do pray for a time when you will gather in your elect from the four corners of the earth that you would send your Son to reign in Jerusalem over us. You'll gather your people to your land, the land that you gave to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob and to all of their descendants. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being joined with Israel, not replacing it, and pray for his soon coming. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.